So larger, shorter catechism. Right. And we'll bring that up in just one more second. What was the third part of the Constitution? Though? Book of Church Order or BCO or as one of the elders at Faith in Morganton says it, and I love it, he called it BOCO. So he'd be reading through the minutes at the end of each session meeting. He said, I, BOCO, 4 dash, you know, whatever. Uh, but I loved how he said it. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, all right, so that is our Constitution. Now, Israel, could you repeat what you said? <laughs> Right. And yeah, so that's that's the question. It should be on your sheet. Why isn't the Bible part of the constitutional standards? It can't be changed. Can the BCO be changed? Yeah. Can the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms be changed? No, I don't think the catechisms have. I know the Confession of Faith was in 17. I think it was 89. Anyone remember the date on that? There was one revision. They changed one after the Civil War, too. I know the major one was after the Revolution about civil magistrates, but I couldn't remember if there was another. Anna's taking a class on creeds right now. Or is it creeds? What is it? Just Westminster Standards. So she probably is more up on some of her history than I am. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, so the Bible cannot be changed. We cannot amend it. We cannot decide we disagree and vote to change it. Uh, The BCO is changed pretty much yearly. Uh, all the overtures that we send up from Presbytery, remember the three courts, session, Presbytery, General Assembly. And every year the Presbytery makes proposals to the General Assembly, to that national level. And all those overtures is what they're called, are just changes to the BCO. So we change little details, wording here, we add a paragraph here, strike through a sentence there. And that's happening every single year. So they'll vote on it at General Assembly. If it passes, then it comes back to the Presbytery. At our next Presbytery meeting in the fall, we're voting on overtures that were approved at General Assembly. And if enough of the Presbyteries approve it, then it will actually go and change the BCO. So this changes yearly. These, I don't remember an instance of this ever being changed. And this has only been changed once or twice. I remember once for sure. Uh, So we can change it if we completely decide that something is against Scripture. We could go vote to change it, but it's very difficult And it would take one strong argument to convince our whole denomination that the confession is wrong on a whole point of doctrine. Uh, But these are our constitutional standards. They hold our belief. The BCO mostly holds our practical uh, uh, form of operation. What did you say? Yeah, application. How we're applying it, how we're running and organizing ourselves. So those three, obviously the BCO changes the most, as I said. That's our standards, though. And as we said, the Bible cannot be amended. Therefore, it is the supreme rule, the supreme authority. It does not change. We do. (laughs) Uh, And, yeah, you see that there in that paragraph. And, by the way, this paragraph, if you didn't look at the dash, it's from the BCO. So in the preface to the BCO, which if you're ever bored and want some reading material, the preface is very short, and it's actually pretty helpful to read. There's some great stuff in the preface to the Book of Church Order. It's much more exciting than the rest of the Book of Church Order. I'll just admit it. Uh, but all of our constitutional standards, we say in the preface, before we even get to our standards in the book of George Order, that they are subject to and subordinate to the scriptures. It says what the scriptures are, the Old and New Testament, and it says the inerrant word of God. In other things, one thing is permanent and unchangeable, and the other things are not. So they largely stay the same. All right, any questions about that? We'll talk more about each one uh, later in the lesson. But any questions at this point about just Constitution, why we have standards, any of that? All right, well, what is that is the next question. Why confessions and standards? Why do we have these? Have you all ever heard the phrase, no creed but the Bible? Or similar things to it? Uh, I don't believe in confessions and creeds. I think we should just look at Scripture. It's plain enough, and that's all we need. Right. Right. 
and you have views on various passages, especially difficult ones, get very, 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 very broad. <laughs> and so what narrows you in, right? Uh, but just what about even the creed? No creed but the Bible. Because some people, and they're well-meaning when they do it, they'll, they'll thump on their Bible and they say, no creed but the Bible. This is the only rule book I need. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think the intention is often very good. It's like the Scripture is the only inerrant source of authority. And so in the, the person's heart when they're saying that, I think 99.9% of the time, they're just trying to be faithful to the Scripture. But what's wrong with the statement, no creed but the Bible? There's a great irony in saying that. Of course, it is in and of itself a creed. They're saying that this is all we need and we don't need anything else except the sentence we just said to explain that. So even by saying that, you've actually stated a creed. But the hidden details is that what's behind your creed, you keep to yourself. So how you interpret the scripture, even though you say no creed but the Bible, that becomes up to you. And you're not putting it out there for other people to critique, for other people to say, well, but your view on that is unbiblical. You're keeping it to yourself. Now, I don't think people are necessarily trying to do that. I'm not trying to say uh, that these people have malintent, but that is in the end what's going on. Uh, To say no creed but the Bible is a creed, and all you're doing is hiding the rest of your views on Scripture. Uh, So any questions about that? It's kind of a funny irony thing to talk about that people don't often realize. No, any of those. So confessions, catechisms, creeds, whatever you take as a standard. So this this is our standard, but there are other creeds like the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, that we obviously agree with. We'll talk about some other creeds, not in depth, but just we'll list some later. And the vast majority of them, we agree with almost everything in there, speaking of the PCA and what we would hold to. But we don't have them as our binding documents. doesn't mean we disagree with them, but they're not our binding documents. Uh, so these are our standards that we've chosen. We say, yes, we feel that this is the best explanation of Scripture. This is the best uh, way to, uh, I'm careful with my wording here, to say this is orthodoxy for the PCA. Maybe I'll put it that way. Um, All right, let me read to you from Westminster Confession 1.7, because I think this adds to it as well. Uh, It's one of my favorite passages in the Confession. So this is what it says. It says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. All right, what does that mean so far? Not all things in Scripture are plain in themselves, and they're not clear unto all. What does that mean? Right. Not all Scripture is easy to understand, and not everybody has the same ability to understand all of Scripture. So there's levels to difficulty, and there's levels to ability when it comes to Scripture. All right, continuing reading. Yet, those things which are necessary to be known believed and observed for salvation, so the things that are actually crucial to be saved, in other words, are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of the ordinary means, that's preaching, prayer, uh, reading the Word, may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. So, in other words, the things that are most important in Scripture are the most clearly stated and stated the most times. As you get into more uh, fine-point doctrines about, say, what are the thousand years in Revelation, that gets less and less clear. And it's harder and harder to understand it, and you have to study it more. So, part of what some people who hold to a more simplistic kind of no creed but the Bible view is they're also trying to say that the Bible is easy enough to understand for everybody to figure out exactly what it means correctly on their own. And just the truth of the matter is that that's not something we can do. We can all read Scripture. We can all understand what we need for salvation. But we can also misunderstand a lot of things. Scripture is not always clear. You have to check Scripture against other Scripture. Not because of contradictions, but because if you see one side of a balance in this context and you go to another They're talking about the same topic, but it's a completely different context. You might misunderstand some things if you don't know how to relate the two passages. So anyway, that's what we're trying to do with these doctrines. And also, there's another part of this as well as to why creeds. 
Who does interpretation belong to? Who gets to say that's what the scripture says versus this is what it doesn't say? Right. Right, because God's the one communicating it. So we have to understand it the way he wants us to. But if you are a lone Christian and there's no such thing as creeds or confessions, it becomes subjective. It's, well, I think it means this. And you might be right. But if you're wrong and it's up to you, and you're going to still think you're right. <laughs> and it can get you into trouble very quickly. So not interpretation does not belong to one person alone. Interpretation belongs to the church, uh, to the faithful church, to determine, yeah, this is what we believe this scripture is saying. Uh, so one person alone can't do it. It's not a subjective thing. And that's another reason for the creeds. We're trying to promote orthodoxy, orthopraxy. You know what orthopraxy is? Right, it actually sounds like what it means for once, right? Uh, so orthodoxy is just the standard of belief. So what we believe is the standard belief of, you know, uh, faith in Christ, that his blood, that he went to the cross to die for your sins. So you trust in him and repent of your sin, you'll be saved. That's just basic orthodoxy. That's the basic gospel, right? Orthopraxy very closely connects to that. If you know that, but then you go on living in sin and never actually believe, your orthopraxy doesn't match your orthodoxy. They're, they're, di- they're different. And so you're not really orthodox in the end. Uh, so anyway, we are, in our belief, and our practice, creeds can help us stay on track. Uh, it can also protect us from heresy. So as heresies come into the church, and you all know your theology, and you know your Bible, and you say, no, we know that's wrong. That's popped up before in church history. And it was ruled a heresy because it was against Scripture. But at the time, it took learned men who knew the gospel well to figure that out, right? So Because it's not always clear. Uh, heresy can be sneaky. But it's also a way for us to unite around core beliefs and understandings of the gospel. It helps us to be united, not that we all think the exact same thing about everything, but that on all the most important things, we're agreed that this is what the gospel teaches. And we can be proud and unite around that and proclaim the word of God to, to the lost. And so that's another reason is unity. And then lastly, I'll list here is that it just it helps us as believers understand the scripture better. Because what a creed really is, is a bunch of godly men, by and large, there have been some bad confessions in history too. But for a good confession, it's a lot of godly men gathering together, praying, working through the scriptures and saying, this is what we believe it teaches. So to throw all creeds and confessions out because you're worried they could be wrong on something uh, is to throw out all of their good teaching, their good wisdom and their good experience. Could they be wrong on something? Possibly. But you can study that and see for yourself. Uh, so anyway, it just helps us stay on track. Any other reasons for a creed that y'all have in mind or comments or arguments? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And well said, it is connecting us in history to other believers. Because the church isn't just right now. The church is before us. The church is after us. And so, yeah, it, it keeps one generation from throwing out the gospel altogether and saying, now we don't believe any of this is true of Scripture. And then they're just off the rails in one generation. No, we're united to what believers have believed all the way back to the early church. Uh, we can go back to these early creeds and see we still believe the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, just another orthodoxy over time, maybe is the right way to say it. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Right, and that's a great question. Uh, I'll just point this one positive. So there's really two reasons to write a creed in church history. Uh, and a lot of those early creeds were very much a part of the first one to combat 
to combat heresy, to combat uh, heretical views of the Bible, heretical views of who Christ is in the atonement. Most of them centered around who Christ really was, uh, whether he was only man or only God or like a, a spiritual uh, being that wasn't even man or God and, and, or a lesser God. There's all these bad views. So most of those were written to say, no, this is the core element of the gospel that you have to believe to be saved. But as you move forward, especially into the 16th and the 17th century, which at, in the Reformation era, the Puritan era, era, what they're doing is they're saying, this is what we believe about Scripture. So not only are they combating some heresy and some bad beliefs maybe out of Roman Catholicism that they had, uh, are rejecting, but also they're putting forward just positive views of what they believe Scripture teaches, giving you a well-rounded, full picture of theology. And your comment about systematic theology, well, a systematic theology is a creed. Uh, nobody who writes a systematic theology book is going to call it a creed, but it's a way to understand Scripture and the themes of Scripture. Uh, and it's not in the Scripture's wording, it's in yours. It's your understanding of the Scripture. Every systematic theology follows that. And so in the end, every systematic theology is a creed. And every creed is a systematic theology. So now we're getting into word, word placement. Uh, but they're all doing the same thing, trying to help you understand Scripture. And if they don't do that well, then it's not a good creed. It's not a good systematic theology because uh, there are bad ones out there. So we'll talk about that more in a minute, but hopefully that's enough at least for the moment. All right, so let's talk about, uh, you know, for the sake of time, we'll skip that. I put some verses there. We read the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4. And so while it is Scripture, there are various places, especially 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 John 4.2, where the writers of Scripture are specifically giving you phrases to say, to repeat together as the church. In addition to Scripture, it's these are special phrases you can use as tests, as ways to confess one truth that you all believe. That's a creed given straight from Scripture. So Scripture uses creeds for the church, in other words, is what I'm trying to say. Well, it's part of Scripture, right? Yeah, it's also a creed because it's something we're saying together that we believe. Creeds from the word credo, meaning I believe in Latin, I think. And so any creed is saying what you believe. And so the Lord's Prayer is definitely a creed. Yeah, that's the biblical example of a creed. No, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a form of creed. Uh, actually, preaching is a form of creed because what is preaching? It's a man going up reading the scripture, and from scripture explaining what it means and what you need to do as a result. That's really a form of confession or creed, saying this is what we believe to be true about scripture, and this you need to lay it to your heart and do these things. Exactly. Exactly. And so it's teaching us. It's teaching us how to understand how to pray in that case. Uh, yeah, we already talked about systematic theology there in the notes. Then there's a quote that I liked. Uh, the Bible is of God. The confession is man's answer to God's word. And that's really what a worship service is. Is God gives us his word. He calls us to worship. He sends us out with the blessing. Uh, he speaks to us through his uh, scripture reading. And uh, as we sing the psalm, we're repeating God's words back to him. As we pray, we're responding to the worship. Uh, so it's a conversation back and forth in worship. And so really that quote is saying the same thing about creeds and confessions. It's us taking the scripture saying, yes, Lord, thank you, Lord, and this is what we understand, and we repeat it back. We repeat it back in a different way to try to help us understand. So anyway. All right, but all that being said, we have to remember with our creeds, even a great one like the Westminster Confession, uh, which I believe to be accurate in everything. Uh, I only took one exception, which if you want to ask me about that later, you can. It's just about uh, a very, very small detail. Uh, but Reformed theology and the PCA holds that the Bible is infallible. We can all agree on that. The scripture is inerrant. But we can also agree that church theology and practice are not perfect. They are not inerrant. They err at times. They mess things up. And so we have to remember, even as we talk about creeds, which I'm about to say a creed as I say it, which is just ironic, but we say sola scriptura. We don't say sola credo because we can mess things up in our creeds. It is possible. We can misunderstand things. Um, yeah, but that doesn't mean that we throw out all church theology, practice, and learning. 
because we can learn from it. It's foolish to throw out the wisdom of those who came before you. Just like it's foolish to ignore what the elders and the teachers of the church say because you think you know better and uh, they're older, they've messed it up, so they don't have it right. Well, that'd be just as foolish as throwing out the creeds. It's the same thing. All right, any final questions on that before we go into the next question I have? All right, well, next question. What if you disagree with the doctrine as taught in the standards? Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Right. Correct. Yeah, so if you disagree, the door's back there, by the way. That's a joke. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> right, and that's where we have to get into, and it, again, it was something that Dave was hinting at. Use uh, a different color marker just for fun. Uh, but I'll just say right off the bat, you can disagree with elements in the standards. You don't have to agree with every detail to be a member. You don't have to agree with every single detail to be a ruling or teaching elder or a deacon. You can disagree with points, but you better make sure there are points that it's okay to disagree with. And that's where we get into three categories. Because not all doctrines are of equal importance. That doesn't mean that every doctrine is important, but they're not of equal importance. And there's an important distinction there. All right. You probably can't read my handwriting, but there's primary doctrines, there are secondary doctrines, and there are tertiary doctrines, just third level and beyond. All right. So what might a primary doctrine be? An example. Yeah, Ten Commandments. I mean, that's scripture, but how you understand them, maybe. Ten Commandments. The gospel. Yeah. Jesus is God. Yeah, all these are great primary Doctrines. You can't throw those out and expect to be welcomed into the church as a great believer. Because if you throw out Jesus is God and you don't believe that, well, how are you even saying you're saved? <laughs> You've thrown out the entire atonement by saying that. Uh, so you can't be a part of a church and deny the fundamentals of the gospel. All right. So if you disagree with these, yeah, we need to have a talk. If you want to join the church and you believe that Jesus was just an angel... Uh, and that he was Satan's twin brother or something like that, we need to talk because you have to profess the gospel and believe it, the primary core elements of the gospel in order to be a member. Because if you don't, the whole point is that we're saying that we don't believe that you're actually saved because your view is so bad that you we're not sure you can genuinely be saved. Yeah, which God or how do you define God or however, yeah. And so the primary elements of the gospel, uh, primary doctrines in the confession, yeah, you can't really quibble on, all right? Because to do so is to throw out the gospel entirely. Now, as we move to secondary, things change a little bit. What might be a secondary doctrine? Things in Revelation? Yeah, that, that's somewhere that kind of hovers between secondary and tertiary. Yeah, because some things can actually cross into primary on that. Like if you're a full preterist, you're crossing the line into primary doctrines. But if you just, when is a thousand years? Okay, that can be tertiary. Uh, but there's some elements, Christ is returning, okay, primary. You know, so that, that one kind of goes all over. But it's mostly secondary to tertiary. Baptism's a good secondary issue. All right, any others you can think of? I think so. Absolutely. And here's the thing with secondary issues. You can quibble on a secondary issue and still be a believer. <laughs> That's not the case with primary doctrines. That's the whole point of why we have this. This is called theological triage, by the way. Uh, I can't remember what book that this was most stated most clearly in. I was going to recommend it, and I forgot to look at the name. 
Uh, but anyway, theological triage. We should not treat every doctrine as a flat blanket equal issue because that's not true. There are differences in importance. So you can disagree with baptism and only hold to uh, believer's baptism or credo baptism, and it won't affect you being a member here at all. You can be a member. You can join. But if we're talking about church officer, well, now we're getting into something more specific because a secondary doctrine may be a reason to go to another church or not to hold leadership, but it's not a reason to divide in the sense of we are enemies now. We can disagree on some secondary issues and it'd be all right. Now, of course, I want to convince you of all the secondary issues. But that said, it is possible to disagree on election and be a member here. Uh, it is possible to disagree with election, and because of that, you feel that it's better for you to worship at another church, and that's okay. Um, there are things like that which we can worship separately in secondary doctrine, but we have to remember we're still united as the larger church, right? And so, anyway, secondary allows you more freedom, if that makes sense. Normally, yeah, because, I mean, if you, you can't be a ruling elder and not hold an infant baptism uh, because it's going to bind your conscience, for one, because uh, we are going to say, and, and you have to align with the confession, at least mostly. And so on secondary issues to be an officer, uh, pretty much all of them you have to hold to the confessional view to be an officer. Uh, Yes, and my only exception with the confession, like I said, is a minor one, technically has to do with that section. Because I don't think it's wrong. I would go with a lot of the other people from the church, including the pastor when I was growing up, and we just enjoy each other and play ultimate frisbee in the field. It wasn't any organized league. You know, we weren't uh, setting up a competition with prize money. We were just out there having fun, enjoying time with one another. And so I was okay with that. I'm still okay with that idea. Some people, and the, the confession's view is more, no, that's, that's recreation. You shouldn't be doing that. And so that's where I took an exception. It's like, well, if it's worshipful in the fact that we're fellowshipping, I don't believe that's against the confession. So I took what's called an exception. And that's the only one I took in the confession, is that I believe it's okay to go and throw the Frisbee around. I put it in tertiary, yes. And that's what secondary, if it's truly a secondary doctrine to be an officer in the PCA, you really have to put it under tertiary. You really can't disagree on a secondary issue. So tertiary, I put something like recreation on the Sabbath under here. And that's just the old uh, confession and Puritan way to talk about it is recreation on the Sabbath. But other things, uh, this could be your view on the millennium. Now, we don't allow any view on the millennium in the PCA to be an officer, but uh, you don't have to be all mill. You could be a, a form of post mill. Um, Oh, Mike, is, does anyone ever been allowed to hold like a pre-mill view? I, I can't remember that. I don't remember seeing it. Okay, I haven't seen that either. So, I, I, But between post-mill and all-mill, we've got a lot of splits in that in the presbytery. We don't fight about it. I'm just saying there's people view things differently. Uh, what was the other example? Oh, yeah, cre- views on creation in Genesis. Um, you have to believe in a historical Adam. That's a primary thing because if there's no historical Adam that you fell through, what does that say about Christ being your second Adam? Can't happen. <laughs> so that's a primary element of creation that you have to hold, a historical Adam. But what might a secondary or tertiary be? Yeah, are they literal? Is it a metaphor? A, a metaphor. So is it a framework that we're supposed to see, like Meredith Klein says? Or is it six literal 24-hour days? Okay, that's my view. But you can be Kleinian and still be in the PCA. So again, right, right. So it's a tertiary doctrine, but you do have to make an exception. And that's what most of our exceptions as an officer need to be tertiary. If it's secondary, you can't really be an officer in the PCA. Does that make sense? The theological triage and We don't need to go through every doctrine or or disagreement and try to figure out what it's under. But I do encourage you to have those thought levels in your mind about primary, secondary, tertiary. 
Is this something that you've got to divide with another believer over? Or is this something that you can just disagree with, go to church with them, and, and enjoy fellowshipping with them? Um, because there are differences. And if we say that, well, your view on recreation is different than mine, so I never want to see you again, and if I do, I'm going to punch you in the face. You know, that is not good. Okay, That's not a primary doctrine. Because, uh, anyway, we need to fellowship and unite around the things that are important, that are things that are important, and then as things go down the list, we can be more and more okay with just disagreeing. It's all right. We can disagree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's how it was in, in Burke County in Morganton area. Yeah, you didn't talk about election with people till you got to know them well. <laughs> right, and they've been taught one thing, or they've been taught that this is a primary doctrine which we need to be on our guard about. This is a heresy in the church. Well, it's secondary at best. Right. And yeah, that is just a complete misunderstanding and a complete misordering of doctrinal views. Um, now, they may mean well, but I still would very much disagree with how they're handling it. Uh, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can only teach exactly what we hold. And if you don't hold this, you're a lesser Christian, lesser minister, lesser whatever. Uh and RTS, you know, it, it could be that way in some ways. It's not denominational. It didn't hold to one. I mean, it put out. I knew a guy, Anglican. I knew a guy who was trying to stay PCUS. Uh, lots of ARP, lots of PCA, EPC, OPC, all the letters, basically. Um, it was pretty broad. But even there, it can be it's a reform thing, you know, reform theological seminary. So we can wave that flag sometimes. Uh, not more than we should, but maybe not in the right way. <laughs> I'll put it that way. All right. If I'm sure you'll have more questions, but I think it might be better if we move on to the second page there uh, and just talk about the three standards for a few minutes. And then as we go through, I'm sure we can apply the things we've been talking about. All right. So the Book of Church Order, and in the preface we saw that it's split into three different sections. Uh, so can someone just reading off the sheet give me the three so I can write them? Form of government. All right, part one. Part two. Unfortunately, we have to have that in the fallen world. All right, and what's the third? Directory of worship. And you'll notice on your sheet, it's not a typo. It's public worship with a K there. Uh Oh, wait, no, it doesn't say that. I'm sorry. That's further down under the confession. Uh, I saved that joke for later. Call dibs. Never mind. All right. So the three forms of gov- uh, divisions of the BCO. So form of government, that's really just the structure of the church, uh, the courts, what's an elder, uh, what's a congregational meeting, how do you hold one, that's that kind of thing. Uh, rules of discipline are exactly what it sounds like. How do you handle cases where somebody has fallen into sin publicly, privately? When it's a minister, when it's an elder, uh, when it's a layperson, how do you handle those things? And then lastly is the directory of worship. And the directory of worship is unique in the fact that it's not binding in the way that the first two are. So this one, there's a few chapters, and I list them there, that are binding. That has to do with the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, of admitting somebody into the church as a communicant member, and I'm missing one. Yeah, 59-3, it gives a marriage of, a, a definition of marriage. And the key being between one man and one woman and what marriage really is. So there are things that are binding there, but the rest of the directory of worship is really more guidelines. It's, it's helpful to, uh, they're guides. It's almost like an appendices just to give you a bunch of helpful stuff to do. And then there's 20,000 more appendices at the back of the BCO, which isn't a section, but it, there's a lot of them. Uh, any questions about the division? 
Why do you think the directory of worship may be the only section where the whole thing isn't binding in the same ways that the first two parts are? Mm-hmm. Right. 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 And that's because we're really talking about most of the, the, the sections are really talking about tertiary things, tertiary doctrines. Uh, how do you, what kind of singing, what style? Uh, well, I don't think some people like to say, well, we know for certain that we have to sing in this way at this tone. I don't agree with those arguments. I, I mean, of course, I have my own preferences on what I think singing and worship should be like. But on something where we can't look to a verse and say it has to be this exact way, because there isn't a verse that tells you, well, is contemporary okay or is it evil? Are hymns okay or are they evil? Are we psalms only or does all the other passages of Scripture talking about singing new songs, do they mean something too? So in other words, Christian liberty to worship as a congregation pleases, so long as it is biblical and follows the rest of our standards. And so it gives freedom to have one church full of, you know, college students near campus. They might may like more contemporary music. I would still want it to be well-grounded, uh, very deep con- uh, contemporary music. But if they want to sing that, they have the freedom to worship, uh, to have their worship service slightly different than how we do here, with more hymns and a song. And so there's that freedom to do that, because we don't believe it is a primary doctrine that we're talking about. So most of these things are just practice, orthopraxy. Um, Any questions about that? Right. 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 I actually agree with you. I wish the whole thing was binding for the most part. There are a few parts that I don't think are as helpful. Um, But I do wish more of it was because it does help safeguard. But as long as there is faithful preaching and we're holding to our standards and examining people well and training them well in the ministry, uh, that will be the safeguard. But I I still agree with you. I do wish it was all binding. That's one of my quibbles with the BCO. Right. 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 And that's why all our standards forbid that, right? Now people try to get around it, but the standards do forbid it. No, we couldn't do women deacons. Now, what some PCA churches try to do is uh, uh, they come up with an unordained position that really they're just trying to change the label so they can hire them. And that, yeah, and and if the presbytery found out about that, we would be in big trouble. (laughs) They would not allow that. And and that's where just uh grassroots the ruling elders helping keep the church uh faithful they have a really strong role in keeping the church biblical Um, and the presbytery does as well so anyway there's a lot of safeguards but i do agree that i wish that the whole directory of worship was binding um 
There are a couple parts. Maybe it's good. It's not. But anyway, that, that gets complicated. All right. So there you have, uh, I put in, uh, a web address there. If you just go to the, yeah, Dave. By all means. Right. Right. No, that's great. And what you just saw was the back and forth as to why is it binding, why is it not? The PCA debated that for a long time. And those are the great arguments on both sides. Just about every year, really. Yeah. And I, it's, it's been a little bit since I just read all the way through the directory of worship. I look at parts of it all the time. Um, I don't remember it being too binding in a lot of ways, but in the same, in the same tone, there are some things that would be binding. Uh, that would limit uh, some things. And whether that's good or bad, that's the debate. Uh, but no, point well taken. And it can still be joyful and fun and upbeat and still be reverent, uh, but you have to choose it well. So let's close. By, I've got the second sheet, which I forgot to grab one for myself here. Thanks. Uh, and let's just walk through this. So this is from something called the Harmony of the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. Uh, this was organized by Morton Smith, who's one of the, the great founders of the PCA. And this is one of my favorite books that I have. And all it is, it's just, the Harmony means... You've got the confession of faith on the left, and it goes through the confession just like normal, the way the confession is structured. And then next to it, if there's an applicable larger catechism that goes with that doctrine, you'll put it there. And next to that will be a shorter catechism if there's one that's applicable with that point. And so this is just an example from chapter 12 on a, uh, of adoption from the confession of faith. So this way we, we hit three birds with one stone talking about the confession, larger and shorter catechism, and get the ideas. So if someone is willing to read that block on the left side, Confession of Faith, please read that. All right. Thanks, Israel. And so there, uh, just that's, uh, there's only one paragraph for of adoption in the confession, and there it is. And in there, you can see there's a lot of things that would guard you against bad views, and there's a lot of things that are just positively teaching you things about what it means that you're adopted by God. Uh, you enjoy the liberties and the privileges of being a child of God. You have the spirit of adoption. You have access to the throne of grace with boldness. So you're struggling with your sin. You say, oh, I can't go to God's throne. I can't pray to him. Uh, it's too terrifying, and I don't have a right. Well, if you look at this, it says that you do. And in fact, it's your duty in that moment to use that right to go and plead for help, plead for mercy and repent. And so anyway, that's just one way to, to go through. Uh, but then it connects. So what is adoption in larger catechism question 74? Well, adoption is an act of the free grace of God, meaning you did nothing to earn it. 
for his only son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. And so the larger catechism, as the name would suggest, is larger. There's a lot more in each question, and there's a lot more questions than in the shorter. You, you're familiar with uh, there's meat and there's milk, right? Meat is, there's a lot to it, and milk, it can sustain you, can teach you, but it's basic, right? The larger catechism is the meat catechism. The milk catechism is the shorter catechism, which is if you're just learning your theology or you want a, a bigger uh, more basic understanding of things, start with the shorter catechism. So question 34 in the shorter catechism on the right side of the page. Adoption is an act of God's free grace, so that's very similar, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. You can see much more concise, but all the truth is still there. It's just not been expounded upon and expanded like in the larger catechism or in the confession of faith. Correct. Right. Yeah. And so if you've just shared the gospel and somebody's just uh, believed in Jesus, the best thing to do is not to walk them through the Westminster Confession at that moment or the, or the larger catechism at that moment. You might be able to get away with the shorter catechism. But even that, it would probably be best to wait a little bit, you know. Uh, now, just so you all know this, uh, we're, we're late on time, but in the back of your Trinity hymnal, you have the Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, and is there a larger or just shorter in Confession? I can't remember. Yeah, just shorter in the Confession of Faith. So, correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, we have a bunch of these extra in the library. You, Anytime you want to look at the Confession or the Shorter Catechism, borrow a Trinity hymnal and take it home, one of the spare ones in the library. Read through it. Learn from it. Study it. Use it for a devotional. There's Bible verses there to go and check. Were these writers crazy when they read this? Did they come up with this out of nowhere? Well, no, it's grounded. It's rooted in Scripture. There you go. Uh, there's an app for everything. Guys. There's an app for everything. There you go. And if you want to, if you're just curious and want to know about what I have to be test or had to be tested on to become ordained in the BCO. You can go read through it and see. All right. Any other final questions? We are right on time. So I'd love to keep talking. About it. It's fun. All right. Well, let me close this in prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you have given faithful men to the church over the centuries and that you, through your word and by your spirit, have taught them, uh, have grown them in the faith and even enabled them to write things down to help us, to help us to learn and to understand your truth as well. We know that their, their words are not perfect, but your words are. Uh, so, Lord, let us always check them against your word, and it is your word that will feed us and grow us. And yet, all these other things, these confessions, can be useful. So, Lord, help us to use those things and prepare us now for worship. Lord, open our hearts to your word. Uh, give us of your spirit that we might understand it, uh, that we might lift up praise to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, And later on, we'll refer back to Deuteronomy 6 about something. All right, does everybody have a handout? All right, very good. Thank you, Hannah. All right, so Deuteronomy 6, we'll start in verse 4. Uh, before we do, does anyone know the name? of Deuteronomy 6.4, what this verse is referred to as. The Shema. Yes, correct. So we're going to read 4 through 9. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, 
and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So really the call is love the Lord your God. How do you love him? You learn his law. You love his law. You love him. You love others. So really that's the big picture is centering around love for God. So let's pray. Lord God, we pray uh, that you would help us as we seek to love you and love one another. Uh, that even as we go through uh, the constitution of our church this morning, uh, that you would use uh, that information uh, to help us to do that. Uh, that you would give us a bigger picture of yourself uh, through your word as we worship this morning. For all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so with that said, we'll return to Deuteronomy 6 4 in a little while. Uh, but first, let's talk about the Psalter for just a little bit. This is actually from last week, something we did not get to. So everybody should have one of these little Trinity Red Psalters in their pew. You might want to go ahead and grab it. And if you've been confused on Sunday mornings as to what is going on with the Psalter, hopefully this will help catch you up to what's going on. So go into the introduction to Roman numeral 7, just a few pages in. And really all the information I'm going to mention is on this page. Uh, So keep your finger there. But if you go through the Psalter, all it is is all the Psalms. And all the psalms set to meter, set in a way in which we can sing them. That's all the Psalter is. Uh, it's nothing fancy or, or different other than it really just reads like if you open your book of psalms in the Bible. It starts at Psalm 1, and it goes all the way through Psalm 150 with tunes and set in a way you can sing it. So that's all this book is, is giving us a way to sing the psalms. Uh, and Scripture commands us to sing. It commands us to sing many songs of praise, and it commands us to sing Psalms of praise as well. And that's why we sing every week we sing a psalm. It's a way to help us memorize it. It's a way to help us meditate on it. Uh, and when possible, I like to do it where we've got our call to worship. That's a psalm. The same psalm for a scripture reading. And we sing the same psalm. And so you're getting the same psalm in three different ways to help you memorize it, meditate on it. And Lord willing, my goal is normally most of the time to help that flow into the sermon and help all those themes uh, connect. But anyway, so with the Psalter... So if we said we're going to sing Psalm 4, you just flip through 1, 2, 3, Psalm 4 is on page 2. We said 150, you go towards the back, keep climbing up a number until you get to Psalm 150. So it's just like finding the psalm in your Bible, except it's only psalms in this book, right? So pretty simple there. Uh, the more complicated thing is how it's set to meter. And I don't know my music theory well, so I don't know like what makes this meter this meter versus that meter. But all a meter is, is how the wording is organized on a page. So if you try to sing a song that's set to meter A, but you try to sing a song that's set to meter B, the words and the music aren't going to line up. And it's, got, it's not going to work. And so with the Psalter, with this book, for instance, uh, Psalm 23 it's set to the meter, common meter, and the tune is, The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. And so that's the, the, the tune we use that matches that meter, so the tune matches the words. Uh, but where it gets complicated is that there are meter lists, and then the tune you choose has to follow that meter. And that's where it gets complicated, because sometimes it's a tune we don't know, or a tune nobody knows. <laughs> In which case, if we use that, we're all lost. Uh, so what I try to do is I have to find another tune that matches the same meter that hopefully at least some of us know so we can sing through the song well. And that's why it gets complicated because sometimes the listed tune is not what we sing. Sometimes it is what we sing. It just depends on if it's when we actually know and can sing well. Uh, and if I think there's another tune that better fits the words or that we know better, I'll switch the tunes. And that's why I have the tune listed in the, salt, in the bulletin each week. So you know what tune we're singing, because uh, it's not always what's listed. All right, have I lost you? Does that make sense so far? So the real thing is look in the bulletin, and if the bulletin says tune, it's um, an example, tune of amazing grace. Well, you know the tune, and then as you sing through the words, you're just putting that tune to those words. All right, so back to Roman numeral page 7. Uh, this altar was put together... In a very specific way. And so their idea is to make, let me see if I can find the exact things so we can read it. All right, so look under tunes and meters on that page. That's the first bold down. And that first sentence right below that says that we have attempted 
to follow the old Reformed ideal of providing a distinctive tune for each psalm. So can someone translate what that means for us? Right. Right. So there are 150 tunes in this book, in other words. Uh, the meters can differ, but there's 150. So every psalm is set to a different tune. Well, that's great if you're really good at knowing your tunes and you know all your tunes backwards and forwards. But some of these tunes aren't even in the Trinity hymnal. Uh, and so that makes it very tricky for us when we're singing. And again, that's why I'd like to switch the tunes to something we actually know. All right. Uh, any questions about anything I've said so far with the Psalter? Right. Right. Yeah, thank you. So flip over to Psalm 23, and this is the last thing we'll do before we move into today's lesson. Uh, So Psalm 23 is one of my favorite psalms, period. It's also one of my favorite songs to sing. Uh, I'm not going to hurt your ears and try to sing it right now, so you're welcome. Uh, But I will explain how things work by looking at the page so you kind of know what's going on. So, of course, there's Psalm 23 at the top. There's the verses, and it goes through, and if it's a longer psalm, What they'll do, like if you look on the page left with Psalm 22, they'll split it into sections for you. Uh, I still think those sections can be way too long sometimes. That's like eight verses sometimes. Uh, But you can see they'll put verses 13 through 22 on page 16, verses 23 through 31. So they're just trying to help you know where you can divide it. Uh, But anyway, go back to Psalm 23 on page 17. And so if you go to the bottom, it'll tell you the tune. It says, tune, crimmed, C-M, and then it gives you a number in parentheses. So crimmed is the name of the tune. And CN just stands for common meter. So that's the meter for this psalm. That's, it is set, this Psalm 23, they wrote it out so it matches the common meter. So Amazing Grace is in common meter. So you could sw- switch out the tune with Amazing Grace and it would fit and it would flow. Uh, and that's why the, the, the meter is the most important and then getting a tune that matches the meter. But if you go in your Trinity hymnal and you try to find Crimmond as a song, you won't find it because it's a tune, not the name of a hymn. So anyway, that can get confusing. I'm just trying to explain somewhat how that works. All right, any questions? That's all I've got so far. No, I had to teach myself and it took a while (laughs) because I'm not a music theory guy or anything. It's and, And if you haven't grown up using this, then you probably won't. And I grew up using this some, not too much, maybe once a month or once every couple months we'd sing the psalm. I had no idea what was going on. I'll just say it. It took me a long time to figure this out, and I still don't understand all the ins and outs. Some of them might. I think so. I know there's a combined version. I don't know if all of the new ones do. And, yeah, if you're ever curious and you really want to dig into this, if you go to the very back of the Trinity Hymnal, It has a section for the tunes, it has a section for topics, uh, and it has a section for meter that will list all the tunes for you. So if you're ever curious and want to do some digging and try to kind of figure it out, uh, you can go do some homework and learning on your own. Uh, But that's all in the back of the Trinity hymnal, whereas the Psalter doesn't actually have a tune list and a meter list. So I wish it did, because that would be kind of helpful. Uh-huh. Oof. I wish I had that class. That would have helped me a lot. <laughs> Instead of having to be self-taught primarily with that. Uh, right. Yeah. And that's what I love our Trinity hymnal. The Trinity hymnal is excellent. The layout is great. We'll talk more about the layout because it connects to some things in today's lesson. Uh the way it lists tunes and meters in the back, once you figure it out, is actually really easy and straightforward. The Psalter just needs to list the tune and the meter in the back, and then because they want every tune to be distinct, that makes it complicated, and we have to switch tunes. So that's my only complaint about the, the Trinity Psalter. Other than that, it's great. Uh, 
But that is one complaint I have, is that the distinct tune for every single psalm makes it really tricky sometimes to try to put a good uh, order together. All right, any last questions or comments before we dig into today's topic? So within a very abrupt change, abrupt change of direction, we go from talking about the Psalter to the PCA Constitution and Standards. So very, very sharp change of pace. So if you look on your handout, uh, we'll basically just walk through this and then see where we have questions, where there's confusion, and work our way through. <clears throat> so if someone could read... Um, Let's see. If someone could just read that first block quote there under our Constitution. All right. Thank you, Patty. So what is the constitution of the PCA? I put things in bold and things to help you out there. Say that again. Oh, yes. How it functions. Absolutely. It is a roadmap. It is a, an aid for us. Uh, but what are the parts? What is our